Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Working Behind the Scenes. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Rosemary Coates. She is the president of Blue Silk Consulting and also the executive director of the Reshoring Institute. But specifically, she'll be joining us to discuss counterfeiting, what retailers and manufacturers do to ward off counterfeits, how the counterfeits enter the marketplace, some of the hidden costs of counterfeiting, and more. We'll also discuss Kroger in our news segment, but more specifically, a private label rollout for Kroger. And we'll look ahead to a survival plan, perhaps for off-price retailer Tuesday morning. A reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. Also, if you enjoy the show, please do hit that subscribe button as each subscriber certainly helps us to bring you the content that you're seeking week after week. Coming up next week, by the way, so excited for this time of year because it's the holiday sales projections time of year. We'll be joined by Rod Sides at Deloitte to discuss their holiday projections, which are usually the first to hit the projection marketplace. So let's dive into it. Kroger releases earnings, and so we couldn't help but look their way. We wanted to kind of get an inflation update as far as the grocery space is concerned. Also, maybe get an update on the e-commerce situation for grocers as early in the year customers were showing maybe some sign of digital fatigue. And finally, as we talked about last week in the interview segment, we really wanted to figure out how they're squeezing out margins from their pricing strategies in the current environment. And instead of any of those three, we got some information on those three things, but we got big news regarding their private label platform, at least regarding their bottom line as we start with the numbers. Kroger did post a beat over analyst consensus estimates, posting adjusted earnings per share of $0.90 cents versus analyst expectations of $0.84. Cents. Over the past two years, they've pretty consistently defeated analyst expectations when you look through their earnings calls, but most of that is by pretty modest margins. They're not blitzing analyst expectations by 100 or 200% over the last couple of years. As far as the rest of their second quarter, which ended August 13th, identical sales minus fuel rose 5.8% across their store base. These were fueled in part by their private label products. Again, more on those in a bit. As sales of private labels in stores rose 10.2%, they continued to capture a greater share of wallet. They released 170 new private label products in the quarter as they continue to keep pace with Albertson's own expansion of offerings. But I think what this tells us certainly is that customers being a little bit more price sensitive, willing to trade to a less expensive product that might be an owned brand for Kroger. Increases in digital sales actually outpace comps as a whole. And so we got the answer a little bit on the e-commerce front. They grew 8%. Year over year, digital sales were affected positively, most by delivery. Delivery was up for them 34% year over year. And this owed largely to their new fulfillment centers in markets without a Kroger store. Orlando being one example. I spent a lot of time in Orlando during the summer. Every time you hit the highway in Orlando, you see a billboard advertising Kroger delivery, even though they don't have any stores in that particular market. That market, as far as brick and mortar is concerned, is dominated mostly by Publix and Walmart. 
In the most recent quarter alone, Kroger opened one new fulfillment center and then seven spoke locations. Four of these overall represent entirely new markets for Kroger. You look at a market like Oklahoma City or Austin, Kroger doesn't have stores in those markets. Oklahoma City, mostly a Walmart and Homeland area. Austin, of course, owned mostly by HEB in terms of market share. But Kroger opening these new hub locations is kind of opening new markets to delivery. And that has resulted in an increase in delivery sales and e-commerce sales. And it'll be curious to see what other grocers post as far as e-commerce sales are concerned, considering that a lot of other grocers, like, for example, Albertsons, aren't undertaking this hub model where they're putting delivery fulfillment centers in areas that traditionally haven't been served by their brick-and-mortar retail stores. They also credited their Boost membership program for driving digital sales as well, something we've talked about in the past on the show. It could be, when you look at it, fairly said that a 5.8% increase in comps is on a real dollar basis lagging inflation somewhat. You look at year-over-year inflation for the second quarter, and I think 5.8% still a little bit behind that for most of the grocery goods or most of the goods that Kroger sells. But it is still roughly in the ballpark of inflation for many grocery goods, maybe behind protein inflation, but right there in lockstep perhaps with some center store products and maybe some fresh products as well. That boost in identical sales as far as numerically allowed Kroger's earnings per share to come in at $1 even. That's $0.90 per share when adjusted. This was $0.10 above last year's earnings per share number in their second quarter. But it should be noted that their second quarter from last year featured a decent amount of deleveraging from falling sales versus the big pandemic boom they saw in 2020. Some of their bottom line this year was helped slightly by fuel price increases and therefore greater profit on a per-gallon basis. And perhaps the most notable number for them on the margin front is that their first-in, first-out gross margin grew two basis points year over year. That's not much of a growth, but it really suggests that their sourcing has been doing a fine job of mitigating inflationary impacts because we see this margin actually shrink for many other retailers out there. Their operating general and administrative expenses did increase by 36 basis points, and that resulted mostly from wage and benefits packages to their employees and to their staff as we continue to see compensation for employees across retail go up and increase. Overall, though, sales were strong enough to warrant Kroger increasing full-year identical sales expectations to the 4 to 4.5% range, so they expect Pretty decent increases for the duration of 2022, and this is up from expectations of 25 to 3.5% increases that were set after the first quarter. Now, let's touch on inflation a little bit more, and we'll spend just a short time looking at what they saw, which was an unprecedented increase in coupon engagement for customers. This was most notable when you look at their digital coupon offerings, 750 million offers downloaded by customers during the quarter that totaled nearly $1 billion in markdowns. And we talked about pricing in the early going and kind of the pricing mechanisms that Kroger was using. And the way they look at digital coupons in particular, but their entire couponing platform, is that this is a way for them to adjust prices based on personalization and based on the needs of each consumer. When we talked last week on the show about pricing. We talked a little bit about products that 
can drive traffic and keeping prices down on those products and being competitive on prices on those products. But what Kroger is doing with their couponing program is they're leveraging this and their mail-based program as well. Shouldn't leave that out when we talk about coupons here to provide that personalization for customers. So instead of, and I'm sure they're using algorithms, a lot of the algorithms that we discussed on last week's show, but instead of doing that and decreasing or increasing prices across the board, what they're doing is they're effectively reducing prices or limiting price increases for products that resonate most with certain consumers while maintaining margins on these products for consumers who may not see them as key to their basket. A good example is their mail coupon program, if you will. I do receive from time to time a coupon for, let's say, 40 cents off a green cabbage because Kroger knows I buy a lot of cabbage at the grocery store. I eat a lot of vegetables. It's just kind of how I roll. But the benefit to that is they're able to keep cabbage prices a little bit higher for people who might be only buying it on a seasonal basis, maybe only buying it for the time around St. Patrick's Day or the time around the holidays. But someone that buys green cabbage a lot and looks at green cabbage as maybe a defining product and choosing where to shop, they're able to discount that specifically for the consumer. So that is where their personalization comes in. They look at that as a part of their holistic pricing strategy. They don't look at coupons as something that is involved with discounts or promotions specifically, but they feel as though that's a, an interesting way to get around pricing and really personalize pricing, not only on a market-by-market market basis, like what we talked about last week, but a customer-by-customer customer basis. One other thing I'll note here is that Kroger said the trend of their customers cooking at home has very much continued. Customers are actually cooking at home more often and more frequently, and they're eating out less often in this past second quarter, perhaps because of those inflationary impacts. Kroger pointed out that this has affected sales of fresh products in a favorable fashion, specifically calling out apples, tomatoes, and grapes. Sales of frozen fruit and vegetables is also up. This is also a reason they're accelerating their company-wide fresh certification for stores. They have nearly a third of their store base certified now with this new fresh program. This has occurred in lockstep with different process management in their cold chain, and what this has done is allowed product to linger in their supply chain for a shorter period of time, and this in turn reduces shrink when it comes to fresh products. But as far as people cooking at home more frequently, you know, it's interesting. I was actually at the San Luis Valley Potato Festival this past weekend in Monte Vista, Colorado, and I was talking to someone that handles potato sales specifically for basically what you would consider a packing company or a potato co-op, more or less. And this person was telling me that ever since the pandemic started, orders for potatoes have gone through the roof. And part of this is because, of course, people are preparing food more often at home, but they're inexpensive. They can be prepared in a variety of ways. And so as far as the produce section is concerned, potatoes have really risen to the forefront. And they're seeing that demand across all types of potatoes. If you want to get super granular, russets, yellows, reds, fingerlings, etc., and as a result, growers are trying to grow a little bit more of these, move a little bit more fresh product into the marketplace. And in fact, I was talking to a potato grower who said that typically he grows yellow potatoes for seed and harvests them first. But what they've been doing of late is taking the larger seed potatoes and actually moving them to the fresh market because the demand is so high. 
And in talking to the potato sales representative, she actually said that there's a little bit of a shortfall in terms of orders that have been placed by major retail companies. So we're talking about the likes of Kroger, Costco, Walmart, Albertsons, and so forth. There's actually a little bit of a shortfall of potatoes this year, in part because people are increasingly turning to preparing foods at home. And so we'll see how that increases maybe prices in the produce section for potatoes this year. But certainly does speak to exactly what Kroger is seeing, where more of their customer base is preparing food at home, and they're seeking versatile items with which to prepare foods at home, potatoes being a main one of those. But even you look at a product like tomatoes, which Kroger called out on the recent call, you know, tomatoes, the same thing. They can be prepared in a variety of ways, are very versatile, and are used in a variety of dishes. So I thought that was interesting just in my conversations with folks at the Potato Festival this weekend about what they're seeing in the marketplace. And I think it's a very real possibility that because of the increased orders by retail outlets, you're going to see prices increase for things like potatoes. The prices typically increase around this time of year anyway, as potatoes really only keep reliably for 11 months. There's a little bit of a lag in late summer before the next potato crop comes in and is ready to distribute to stores. It's probably more than you ever wanted to know about potato distribution, but I did find it interesting, especially given Kroger's news this week. All right, so we've talked about the numbers, we've talked about inflation, we've talked about pricing with Kroger, but perhaps the biggest news that came out of last week, their private label changes. On the same day as their earnings call, or actually just hours before, Kroger announced a streamlining program for their private label platform. And honestly, when you look at it, this streamlining looks a lot like what Target executed a few years back, combining multiple private labels under the new Good and Gather label. So here, Kroger will be creating a new brand. This brand will be called Smartway. This brand will eventually envelop 16 pre-existing legacy private label brands. And like the Good and Gather label over at Target, the Smartway brand will mostly include opening price points. The consolidation, when you look in Target's case with Good and Gather, was a little bit more complete. Your Kroger wants to create a budget brand that is clearly seen throughout the retail store. And we talk about retail being a copycat industry. We can clearly see the fingerprints of Target's own private label platform all over this consolidation for Kroger and some of the benefits that Target has reportedly seen from this consolidation Kroger wishes to capitalize on. Unlike with Target's transition, though, Kroger will still maintain many other private label brands. Target did leave some others on the shelf after Good & Gather, but the number was far fewer than it will be for Kroger. So Kroger will retain the natural and organics brand Simple Truth, and their upscale differentiating brand Private Selection will also stay. Home Chef, Heritage Farm for ready-to-cook foods and meats, respectively, will also stay in place as will some of their baseline Kroger brands. But a total of 16 legacy brands are going to be pushed into this opening price point Smartway label. And you would think this would include products such as the general Kroger brand for cheese and cereal, as an example, along with the budget brand Pst, which I will insist that that's how it's pronounced, but P-S-S-T is how it looks on packaging, for paper products and several other brands there. Their hope is that by consolidating all of these entry price point products into one brand, they can better convey the message of value throughout the store to the consumer rather than the consumer having to kind of guess at what is the value priced 
private label in a particular store section. So they want this to be the same throughout household products, throughout dairy, throughout the middle of the store, and so forth. Stuart Aitken, their senior vice president and chief merchant and marketing officer, more or less said this much in the prepared release. He noted that in the current inflationary environment, customers are increasingly looking for value, and they hope smart way, I quote, will be easy for customers to find, end quote. And ultimately, that is the goal here, to make things as convenient for these bargain shopping customers as possible. It's all about simplicity. It's all about winnowing down the private labels that had slowly been added to the portfolio over the years. And you do see this from retail stores. They kind of add new private labels as they go. And sometimes you need this necessary contraction to simplify things for the consumer and really kind of build that brand image in the mind of the consumer as well. And it'll be interesting to see if the likes of Albertsons will follow suit. A shopper recently remarked to me in a Safeway store that their store labels do a great job of appearing like national brands, but there are so many different ones throughout the store, so it can make it difficult to track what's really that private label option or what is the budget option if you are price conscious. But then again, Albertsons hasn't really known to be as competitive on price as Kroger of late. So maybe Albertsons does favor their current private label direction if they're not going to be as competitive towards those budget-minded shoppers. In any case, for Kroger, this consolidation will happen over time. It will start with 150 total products throughout the store immediately, as soon as this week, in fact. But it will expand over time to kind of subsume the other private labels as stock of existing packaging runs out. So if they run out of a particular packaging, you're going to see the smart way packaging take over on store shelves. And you'll see a lot of that in Kroger stores over the next six months. Well, that'll do it for our opening news story. We certainly discussed a lot as it pertains to Kroger and some of the macro level grocery environment goings on. But coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Rosemary Coates. She's going to talk a bit about counterfeiting in retail some of the most commonly counterfeited goods, and how retailers can enact anti-counterfeiting measures, what those measures look like, and then the future of counterfeiting and anti-counterfeiting as well. We've talked on the show in the past about the process retailers and CPGs must go through to source items from overseas. However, the issue of counterfeit merchandise can throw a wrench even in the most well-oiled supply chain gears. We often think about counterfeits as it pertains to luxury goods, but the reality of it is it affects retailers in many other ways as well. Joining us to discuss counterfeits, anti-counterfeiting measures, and other issues in the retail supply chain world is Rosemary Coates. She is president of Blue Silk Consulting and also the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, among many other things, including a best-selling author. Rosemary, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm a busy one. <laughs> Looking through your bio, I had to just pick out a couple of things for the introduction. But to that point, kind of for the benefit of our listeners, I was wondering if you could talk just a bit about your background and how your career in supply chain developed, some of the experience you bring to your current roles. Sure. So I've been in supply chain management for, I don't know, 35 or 40 years, something like that, doing lots of global sourcing and manufacturing, especially in China. I spent a number of years sourcing and manufacturing in China. I worked with lots and lots of clients there. 
So I've been in management consulting primarily through my career, although I did work in industry for a while. And then about 10 years ago or so, actually it was during the 2012 presidential election, both Mitt Romney and Barack Obama were China bashing like crazy. And some of my clients started talking to me about the potential to bring some manufacturing back to the U.S. And out of that grew the Reshoring Institute. So today, I still have my consulting firm, Blue Silk Consulting, where we do global supply chain stuff, still some sourcing in China. I do also expert witness work there. But the Reshoring Institute has sort of taken center stage, and now we're helping a lot of companies bring back manufacturing to the U.S. and or expand their manufacturing here so we're sort of doing all kinds of global trade and supply chain stuff and reshoring stuff and all kind of in supply chain, which is obviously my passion. And before we get into talking about counterfeits, I did just want to ask you very briefly, because I know it's such a big part of your life and, and what you do, especially as far as your career is concerned. Could you explain to our listeners what the idea of reshoring is and how that dialogue might work between a retailer and someone like you? in order to kind of steer them more towards reshoring, if that's their goal. Absolutely. So when China ascended to the World Trade Association in 2001, the doors sort of flew open and there were no longer heavy restrictions on importing and exporting to China. And so many retailers, including lots of manufacturers that were feeding into the retail channel, all went to China because it was a low-cost production area and had lots of resources and developing. And I think the story is well known. So, you know, from a retailer's perspective, it was a bonanza because you could source products that were inexpensive and American consumers were demanding that. Not so much today. So in today's environment, China's no longer low labor environment, low-cost labor environment. And consumers are demanding products that are made in the U.S. And so the idea of bringing some manufacturing back to the U.S. is what we call reshoring. But it also includes companies that are expanding their operations here and never going overseas. So that's you know two aspects of it. But essentially, it means bringing manufacturing back to America. All right. So now that we have that background, let's go ahead and jump into the issue of counterfeits, and let's go back to the very basics to start. How do counterfeits happen, and how do they enter the supply chain? Well, it's a, you know, sort of the dark underbelly of global production, and counterfeiters are obviously taking advantage of an opportunity to sell goods and make a profit. There's an awful lot of crime involved with counterfeiting as well. Oftentimes, these counterfeiters are supporting global trafficking and arms, they are supporting terrorist organizations, drug cartels, money laundering operations, all kinds of things. So there's a lot of dark underbelly. But there's also, you know, a bunch of teenagers that are sitting at their computers in the U.S. and finding ways to manufacture counterfeit goods around the world and then selling them on eBay or Amazon or Alibaba in other parts of the world, particularly in China. So you know, the rise of counterfeiting has been actually quite surprising over the past 10 years or so, and is driving some of the reason why we want to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. where we have a little bit more control 
and also to avoid all the economic impact to retailers. So, and we know from OECD, which is the big economic group worldwide in Paris, that there are about $3 trillion worth of counterfeits in the marketplace today. And those are only the ones that are reported. Lots and lots of counterfeits are never reported in any official way. So it's, you know, it's just this huge problem, not only for retailers, but consumers who are buying goods and unknowingly they're counterfeit. You know, here's another example. Every time I get on an airplane and I buckle my seatbelt, I always think, oh, God, I hope there's no counterfeits in the avionics, you know, (laughs) because counterfeits are a big problem in aerospace and defense, as well as in electronics industries. They're all over the place and very often indistinguishable from the real thing. So, you know, they're floating around there. We're buying them. They're in all kinds of products and they may endanger your health and safety. And geez, it's just, uh, it's just really awful. Well, let's talk about some of the items that you might see from a retail context these counterfeits pop up, because I think most people think about counterfeits and they think, oh, okay, well, you know, there's a counterfeit product product or something along those lines, but it's further reaching than just the luxury goods industry, what are some other pretty commonly counterfeited goods that pop up on retailer shelves or in retail supply chains that get weeded out before they make it to the shelves? Yeah, so almost anything can be counterfeited now. Awful lot of consumer products can be counterfeited and are counterfeited. In fact, Nike is the most faked brand. It isn't just high-end goods and big brand names and that sort of thing. Even, you know, ordinary Nike shoes can be counterfeited and are counterfeited quite frequently. So the top items that are counterfeited are almost all consumer goods like cosmetics, consumer electronics, consumer branded products. So what the counterfeiters do is they look for products that are big sellers. So you might have, let's say, a hoverboard, for example. A few years ago, you remember those, they were hot sellers for Christmas And there were a few companies that were making legitimate hoverboards and then a whole bunch of counterfeiters and those that made their own brand of product that did not meet all the specifications and regarding safety and so forth. And there were, as a result, a lot of hoverboard fires and, you know, all kinds of injuries and so forth related to that. So, you know, there are things like popular toy, for example, those are counterfeited all kinds of cosmetics that are counterfeited. And it's really hard for the consumer to tell the difference. It's hard for retailers to tell the difference. So, you know, you may look at a product that looks exactly the same as the original, but it is truly a counterfeit. There's a museum in Washington, D.C., but it's a counterfeit museum. And they have all these products there where you have like a true branded legitimate basketball next to one that's counterfeited and that you absolutely cannot tell which is which. Or they have, you know, all sorts of things on display and then you have an opportunity to determine whether you think it's real or not. And 50% of the time you can't tell the difference. So, you know, it's really a vast, vast problem across the world, in fact. And just, you know, in some cases, there's just no way you can tell the difference. So you mentioned not being able to tell the difference, the products looking nearly identical one next to the other. So that brings us to this question as it pertains to retail. How do retailers tell the difference and what are some anti-counterfeiting measures that they can put into place so that both they and their customers know 
that they're not being had, so to speak. Yeah, so there's a lot of development of new ideas around counterfeiting. There's unfortunately no silver bullet, but there are a number of things that you can do. And first and foremost, and what we always coach our clients about is to have control over your global supply chain. So I don't mean just, you know, on on paper and you're checking the quality and that kind of thing. You need to get on an airplane and go see where that factory is and what they're producing for you. And not just once, but you need to keep careful and tight control over that manufacturer and their processes so that there are not counterfeits introduced. So that's really important. Whether you're dealing with counterfeits or you're dealing with quality or pretty much anything, you have to have positive control over your global supply chain. So that's the most important thing. But then there are some other technologies, you know, there's certainly RFID technologies and ways of printing ink on, you know, specialty ink on your products so that they can be identified. You can use software to identify some of the potential counterfeiters out there. It's just, you know, it's really a a vigilance over what's happening in your supply chain and using the tools that are appropriate. Now, the problem with all the technology is that a lot of products are consumer products and they're, you know, 10 bucks or less. And it just doesn't make sense to deploy things like RFID codes or other identifying markings on your product. It's just too expensive for low cost items. So the answer is you have to control that supply chain and make sure that there aren't counterfeits being introduced. When you do catch them, and there's lots and lots of them on eBay, for example, eBay is notorious for having counterfeits on their websites. Of course, Amazon, although Amazon has got a pretty hefty program in place to try to identify counterfeits. So you have to notify them. You have to ask them to take that site down so that they don't continue to sell these things. And in some cases, you have to go after them legally. I mentioned that I do expert witness work and have worked on a number of counterfeit cases where you have to sue the counterfeiter once you find out who it is in order to get them to stop doing business, to stop counterfeiting. And that's, you know, it results in some legal fees and can or can't be successful. It just sort of depends on the case. But, you know, it's all part of this vigilance to try to stop this counterfeiting from happening. Well, and you hit on one with legal fees, but obviously, you know, the cost of potential lost product if it gets in your supply chain as far as a retailer is concerned. But I'm curious, what are some other maybe hidden costs of counterfeits for retailers, either their presence in the marketplace, maybe taking away market share from retailers, or once they get in your own supply chain, what are some hidden costs there? For sure. So that's the problem. Every time a counterfeit sells a product that has your brand or your name or appears to be your product, you lose that revenue. And, you know, it's just a huge focus. There are an awful lot of companies, too, that never report counterfeiting because they don't want the public to think that there are counterfeits in their supply chain. So, you know, a lot of stuff never gets reported at all. So, you know, once again, I think the most important thing is to have positive control over your supply chain, be vigilant, look for counterfeits that may pop up on Amazon or on eBay. I mean, you have to pretty much watch that on a daily basis to see if anyone's posting. If you do find counterfeits, for example, on Amazon, you can ask them to shut down the page that displays the products. 
and they will. They'll shut it down for a period of time, and then you can either prove or disprove that it's actually a counterfeit. And so that's, you know, one way beyond just a lawsuit, but that's one way of controlling what's going on. The other thing to note is that, you know, China is the top offender in terms of counterfeiting. But as production moves away from China, whether it comes back to the U.S. or goes to another low-cost country like Vietnam or Malaysia or Thailand or Turkey or India, the counterfeiters move right along with them. So simply moving to another country isn't going to stop the problem either. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm like full of bad news today, aren't I? No worries whatsoever. I mean, it's a, it's a topic that honestly is an unsavory one to talk about, but it does affect retailers throughout the globe. So let's talk about some positive things. What are, other than keeping a tight grip on their supply chain, what are some positive maybe case studies that you can look out at and say, hey, that retailer, maybe that goods manufacturer, they've got it down. They've got their thumb on it. Maybe they don't have the silver bullet, but they're doing really neat and creative things. I think the most successful companies that are fighting counterfeiters have established a anti-counterfeit organization or anti-theft organization within their company. And then, like I said, they're fighting counterfeits on all fronts. So it may be that they're looking, they have somebody cruising eBay and Amazon for counterfeit products every day. Maybe they're controlling their supply chain channels so they know exactly what they ship to which intermediary and how much. And then when there's you know more stock or whatever, that, that's how they identify there are other counterfeiters out there. So controlling those supply chain links and so forth is another way putting markings on your product. If you have a higher value product, you should consider a tag of some type or another or ink to identify the goods. Educating your customers. So especially on the big brands, you know, educating your customers what to look for to make sure that it's a true product and a true brand. So, you know, you have to kind of keep fighting this on multiple fronts and paying attention to it because the counterfeiters aren't going away, unfortunately. And then this last resort, of course, would be a lawsuit. Some of the big brands, I've worked on a couple of lawsuits for some European automotive makers who there were branded parts being sold on eBay that were not genuine parts. And so this company goes after all those counterfeiters And while it's expensive, it helps to reduce the amount of counterfeit that's out there in their marketplace. So those are all the sorts of things that can be done potentially. And I think it's just an ongoing fight. Well, as we wrap it up, I always like to ask people regarding their particular area of expertise, what the future will look like. And this is kind of different because in, in the situation of counterfeiting, Obviously, the counterfeits are developing right along with the anti-counterfeit measures. So what do you picture this landscape looking like in five to 10 years as retailers and manufacturers kind of fight against the counterfeiter? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Trent. The landscape is one way today, and in five years, it's going to look somewhat different. I don't think counterfeiting is ever going to stop. I think it's too easy for counterfeiters to go in and produce a product that's similar to your product or to distribute it through a channel. There's gray market goods out there, which are this whole nother category. I think having a strategy is the most important thing. So instead of just reacting, 
having a positive strategy to look at where there may be counterfeits in your supply chains, going after them, getting tough, lobbying Congress to improve the laws regarding counterfeits. So there's some laws on the books right now that address the counterfeiting issues, but it could be strengthened. And also, you know, joining certain coalition organizations like the IACC, that's an international anti-counterfeiting group, and they do the research and come up with all kinds of great suggestions that you might be able to implement. Five years from now, I think we're still working on it. Hopefully, there'll be some new technologies that are less expensive introduced, but it's going to be a fight for the long term. Well, some great insight into an area that, honestly, we don't talk about a lot on the show, but certainly deserves more discussion here. Well, Rosemary, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule, joining us today to talk about this very important topic. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We thank Rosemary for joining us again. And now we look ahead to Tuesday morning in the off-price space. You know, Tuesday morning has been known as a struggling retailer for really the past seven to eight years, they've had various executives with various turnaround plans. None of them have really stuck. They did do a re-imaging of their overall look. They've grown in terms of some brick-and-mortar locations. They shrunk back and pulled out of some other shopping centers. But this week, this past week, a big announcement for Tuesday morning as there's a strategic investment taking place from a group that's led by Retail E-Commerce Ventures. Retail e-commerce ventures, if the name sounds familiar, it's because they purchased Pier 1 Imports, Steinmart brands, Models, linens and things and so forth. Basically, what they've done is in liquidation or bankruptcy for these businesses, they've bought a lot of the intellectual property with the idea of turning these things into an e-commerce store. So Retail e-commerce ventures has created a special purpose vehicle that has bought in $32 million in convertible debt financing. This debt is convertible to shares of the company's stock. So this would actually leave them, if converted, as the company's largest shareholder by a good amount. As a result, retail e-commerce ventures will more or less get to choose who they put on the board at Tuesday morning. And then Tuesday morning, will have a licensing agreement that will allow Tuesday morning to sell Pier 1 products as well. So the Pier 1 brand kind of lives on in this circumstance because Tuesday morning stores can become an outlet for them. But also Tuesday morning gets to tap into the e-commerce fulfillment that Retail E-Commerce Ventures has developed for a lot of these what would otherwise be defunct brick and mortar brands in the e-commerce space. And this is a positive thing for Tuesday morning because if you followed the company at all, They've really lagged in terms of their e-commerce presence, so this gives them an opportunity to really kind of tap into some of the, not only expertise, but also some of the fulfillment centers that exist with retail e-commerce ventures. Now, the reason I'm looking ahead to this is we've seen a little bit of 
momentum around resurrecting some of these brands that were thought to be well-liked by consumers, whether it be in a brick-and-mortar or e-commerce space. We've seen Toys R Us brand products resurrected in certain other retail stores. So really what I'm looking ahead to is just how much Pier 1 products will resonate with consumers still in 2022 and whether this influx of cash will be enough to kind of push Tuesday morning forward into their next phase, into their next chapters. They've entered a lot of different chapters over the last seven to eight years in terms of what they've wanted to do on the retail front. And one of the things when you look at struggling retailers that often portends bankruptcy and final liquidation is the fact that they switch leadership so often. And you wonder with the board of directors maybe stabilizing a little bit with retail e-commerce ventures buying in and getting their opportunity to name some directors to the board. You also wonder if the current CEO of Tuesday Morning, Fred Hand, will be around for a longer period of time with this investment there. Regardless, though, this does give Tuesday Morning a little bit of that liquidity. Again, you're looking at basically $32 million in capital influx, along with a few million also contributed by Tuesday Morning leadership. And one of the other interesting things is that NASDAQ, upon which Tuesday morning trades, they typically require stockholder approval for something such as this. But Tuesday morning received a financial viability exception to this requirement from NASDAQ. So it is not pending any shareholder vote. It is subject to, and I quote, the satisfaction of certain conditions. And they go so far as to say there's no assurance that the transaction will be consummated, but it's scheduled to close on September 19th. So just anxious what's going to go down here in Tuesday morning in the next year or so. They still have 487 stores in 40 states. And especially with off price being, you would think, a hotter area now with some price conscious customers out there, maybe this is the right time to do a deal such as this. And having this influx of capital will enable Tuesday morning to scale up appropriately both on the e-commerce side of things and in terms of getting some strength in buying because we know those deals out there exist right now for off-pricers in an unprecedented fashion almost. So looking forward certainly to financial results for Tuesday morning should come out September 23rd, but also future quarters for Tuesday morning and exactly how much of an impact that Pier 1 brand will make and how much of an impact e-commerce fulfillment capacity now will make for the company that has been on hard times over the last seven to eight years. Well, that'll do it for us here on the podcast. Once again, thanks to Leighton Behind the Scenes. I'm Trent Kling saying so long until next week. We'll look ahead to holiday sales next week with Deloitte's Rod Sides. Until then, have a great seven days. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.